welcome to the Finity podcast series. My name is Kalise Liu and I am joined today by Raid Musselin, who is Affinity Principal, who is also a leader of our Climate and Perils team. And today we will be talking about the 28th Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or COP28, which was just held in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. COP28 was billed as an opportunity to take stock of progress, or perhaps a lack thereof, on the Paris Agreement, and to reach an agreement on phasing out or phasing down of fossil fuel use, and to work on the seemingly intractable problem of funding for both adaptation and mitigation. While press coverage is understandably focused on political negotiations, statements, agreements, and commitments, COP is much more than a gathering of political leaders hashing out communiques. It's also a gathering of the world's leading technical experts, where ideas are shared and solutions developed. For example, the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures Framework, also known as the TCFD, and the International Sustainability Standards Board, known as the IWSB, grew out of the work at previous COPs. As we expect there will be a lot of coverage on the political negotiations, today we will be focusing on happenings at COP in science, transition, technology and financial reporting. Raid had a first-hand look at this as he attended both COP27 last year in Egypt and COP28 this year in the UAE. Raid, welcome. And let's start with some background on your role at COP. Thank you, Khalees, and it's uh, great to be here today. Uh, I attended COP as the head of the International Actuarial Association's delegation, which represented the global actuarial profession. And the IAA is recognized as a non-governmental organization by the UN, which in this case was important because accredited representatives of NGOs are granted access to the Blue Zone, where diplomats and scientists and other experts meet. And that's really good for the actuarial profession because it really shows how our commitment to the process and also the fact that we're recognized by the United Nations as an important component of solving the climate problem. Uh, COP this year was organized with uh, many pavilions, which are locations where various governments and scientific organizations hold sessions on climate topics. And I was able to attend presentations and have discussion with a wide range of experts there. So this year's COP was set up with a thematic program where each day's activities were focused on a specific topic. Can you tell me about the themes this year? Well, the themes included a wide range of things, including a World Climate Action Summit, a health, finance, trade, energy, the just transition, urban issues, youth, education, nature, oceans, food, and agriculture. So as you can see, this this really shows the breadth of discussions at COP, and it includes far more than just headline commitments on reducing emissions or arguing about the communiques that end the session. It really does cover everything to do with climate. Well, well not only climate, Khalees, but you know, also sustainability topics, uh, development for um, you know countries in the developing world, uh, and also very importantly, sustainability matters like biodiversity and water use and a lot of other things which affect the climate and which the climate affects. Mm. And importantly, you mentioned a just transition and I want to talk a little bit about what that is and why that is important. Well, a transition refers to the process of kind of changing the global economy's energy infrastructure away from fossil fuel and towards clean, sustainable sources. And achieving that is going to cause a lot of economic disruption, uh, such as, say, closing coal mines and opening new mines for minerals that are needed in electrification. And, yeah, that's going to cause some workers to lose their jobs while other jobs are created. And we're going to need to retrain workers and help communities find new sources 
sources of employment so and so forth. So a just transition simply means that instead of just following profits and trying to extract minerals at the lowest cost or whatever, that we redirect some of our energy towards making sure that the communities and people who are adversely affected by transition are helped and retrained to have productive livelihoods. Mm, and this is really a challenge that's going to affect society in the next five to ten years we talk a lot about the physical impacts of climate change but but a just transition is going to be a a more imminent challenge yes is that that fair well well, yes and importantly uh, we have to build political support for a transition and if workers fear for their jobs and people are afraid they're going to lose their homes and their communities they may not support the steps we need to build a clean energy future so actually as it was pointed out many times at cop you know the sustainable development and just transition and reducing the effects of climate change all work together and reinforce one another another so you kind of can't do one without the other Mm. um i see you are wearing a pin showing the un sustainable development goals can you tell me about what these are and how they factored into COP? Well, yes, the, the, the SDGs are central to the UN's focus on how we can develop the world in a sustainable manner. And there's 17 goals that cover issues such as poverty, hunger, health, education, inequality, and peace. And these have been uh, signed on to by groups uh, such as some of our insurance companies in Australia. They've been supported by entities like the Actuaries Institute and many other groups. And many of the speakers at COP really focused on how tackling climate change supports all of the sustainable development goals. And importantly, supporting the sustainable government goals promotes uh, dealing with the effects of climate change. So we need to view this problem holistically and not just focus on individual issues in a vacuum. But we have to understand that, you know, by increasing education or making it easier for women to, um, you know, raise families or to solve other social problems makes it much easier to tackle climate risk issues. Mm, it's, all, it's all interconnected. That's right. Mm. What about the science? Well, what was the latest scientific findings that was presented at COP? Well, I, you know, there was a core part of COP and I went to many presentations from some of the world's best scientific minds on what we've been observing in recent years. And While the science is crystal clear, it's frankly pretty alarming. Um, The World Meteorological Organization, or WMO, kind of had a session to present the state of the global climate report. And it was actually, the session was actually led by an Australian from the Bureau of Meteorology in Melbourne. And it noted that in the decade ending in 2020, it was the warmest decade on record going back to the 1860s, and probably the warmest in tens of thousands of years based on, you know, paleo records, that atmospheric concentrations of all major greenhouse gases are growing, that methane, which is a very potent greenhouse gas, uh, 25 times as potent as carbon, uh, methane proportions have nearly doubled in, in, the, in the last decade, that Glacier and ice sheet loss are unprecedented. Sea level rise is accelerating. Ocean heat and acidification are damaging marine ecosystems. And certainly extreme weather, as we've observed here in Australia, is undermining uh, not only uh, insurance systems and property insurance markets, but also sustainable development. But but I I guess after after all that, bad news, (laughs) there was one bright note, which the scientists noted that the ozone layer, which at one point in the 1990s was rapidly... uh, Um, being uh, deteriorated, is on 
track for full recovery following the Montreal Accords, which banned certain harmful refrigerants. And I think this really shows that international action is possible. And finally, I'll note that the scientists also said that these trends are going to continue for several decades, even if we rapidly stop using fossil fuels. So we're going to need to make substantial investments in adaptation and in defenses against more extreme weather and rising seas. Mm. And the use of fossil fuels, that's really been a big headline for this COP. Well, what did you, what did you learn about emissions and fossil fuel use trends? Well, there was another session there from the UN Environment Program entitled Phasing Down or Phasing Up, which basically reviewed fossil fuel production uh, activities across the world. And it noted that we are way off target uh, for managing emissions growth and that uh, by 2030, production of fossil fuels is expected to be double the target levels established only a few years ago for the 1.5 degree warming target. And, and, and the root of the problem is that you know, the actions that governments and industries are taking are not consistent with their pledges at places like COP. So for example, um, fossil fuel production levels at the individual sector level are far beyond what is compatible with net zero pledges. And in the aggregate, they said 2030 production is likely to be double what is compatible with 1.5 degrees centigrade and 69% above 2 degrees centigrade. So rapid drops in fossil fuel use are needed, and that includes phasing out coal and by 2040 and reducing oil and gas 75% by 2050. Um, and, and also, one last thing, many plans are focused on showing reductions by moving from oil or coal to gas, but there's rarely any talk about how you phase gas out, which is also greenhouse gas. Mm -hmm. So I think overall emissions are continuing to rise despite promises to meet strong emissions targets. And we're going to have to resolve that problem if we're going to control warming. One of the big challenges is that developed countries have really gotten their wealth through fossil fuel development. So how do you see developing countries continue to build their own wealth kind of in this environment where we are targeting fossil fuel reductions? Well, that's a great question, Khalees, and it and it is one of the you know sort of conundrums of the current situation in that you know many countries grew rich by burning fossil fuels and building up the levels of carbon and methane that are in the atmosphere right now, um, but that accumulated wealth is not really available to help the you know either offset the effects of that through adaptation or to um, help developing countries achieve electrification and development in a sustainable manner so you know while the focus to date at cop has been on historically large emitters like the u.s and china in in the future decades we've got to focus on developing countries and you know many of them are growing rapidly and there are People expect things like cars and air conditioning and a you know middle-class standard of living like we're accustomed to here in Australia. You know, there is potential good news here in that many of these countries need to dramatically expand their energy infrastructure, and they will be doing that to some extent with a blank sheet of paper. So they can either develop that through fossil fuels the way we did years ago or sustainably the way we need to in the future, but they're going to turn to the cheapest sources of energy, and if the cheapest source of energy is fossil fuels, they're likely to repeat the mistakes we made. So we've got to somehow make sure that when they build their electric grids and increase their capacity for energy production, that they do so in a sustainable manner. 
Were there other things that we should be focused on? Well, yeah, there were there were many many things, but I, I guess three sort of jumped to mind, and and I'll note electricity grids, oceans, and water. So let me take those in turn. Electricity grids are are really critical and sometimes an overlooked part of the uh, you know net zero transition. I mean, it's all well and good to have lots of solar panels generating power, but if you can't move the power from where it's generated to where it's needed, uh, you, you know, you've got a, got a problem. And often uh, the places where we used to put fossil fuel plants, we were able to really build them right next to popular centers. So perhaps the electric transmission lines are not in the places where you would have wind or solar power. So, uh, you know, we have to do a lot of work to build up electricity grids. For example, uh, the UK said that it needs to build five times as much capacity in its grid in the next few years as it did in the past 30 years. And the UK is even considering moving the location of manufacturing closer to the sources of renewable power. And, and so there's a lot of rethinking about how, where people live and, you know, how we manufacture things that, that is going to be dependent on the grid. And, and, you know, globally, we're going to have a lot of new capacity in smart grids, but that's going to require a lot of investment and a very high volume of raw materials. So on oceans... You know, the, the, the oceans are really critical to, to global, the global climate and health and food supplies. And we've seen serious warning signs of rapid warming, uh, stress on ecosystems, dying coral reefs. And, you know, the oceans are really the key to the global food chain. And if we don't pay more attention to them and control some of the adverse effects of warming, we, we could have some significant problems and tipping points. And finally, on water, there was a lot of discussion at COP focused on how much water is wasted and how it can be controlled. And, you know, two areas of focus are like agriculture and household use for non-drinking purposes. And interestingly, there was one presenter who's working with Sydney Water and discussed, uh, you know, projects in Australia to employ water recycling technology like we've used in, you know, space station and places like that to, um, and it's being used in Europe right now, to uh, recycle water for uses that don't require fresh water, such as, you know, uh, washing or, um, you know, toilets or things like that. So there's a great opportunity to make water use more efficient, which is really going to be necessary in a warming world as Australia, for example, experiences more dry periods. Mm. Sounds like there was pretty good Australian representation then with the Bureau and and Sydney Water being two of the sessions you went to. Yeah, yeah, well, there, there was quite a good deal of Australian presence at COP. Um, you know, we were well represented by sciences, our new climate t- department known as DQ, uh, trade specialists, and, you know, of course, the usual diplomatic delegation. And the Australian Pavilion really hosted sessions on, you know, developing green hydrogen, our plans for, you know, becoming a sustainability superpower through exporting clean energy and minerals. And Austrade was quite active in talking to other delegations about trading opportunities, etc. And our national adaptation plan and net zero strategy were also uh, discussed. And, and was there much attention on banks and insurers? Oh, oh yes. Um, and, you know, I, obviously I paid more attention to that perhaps since I, you know, work in that sector and I'm an actuary. But the financial sector uh, was certainly front and center of uh, quite a bit of discussion at COP. Uh, and they, in fact, had an entire day themed on finance, which included insurance. 
And, and a lot of discussions cited the importance of private sector finance and helping with funding gaps because, frankly, a lot of government funding is not uh, materialized. And in fact, it's been private funding that's actually been providing more um, more resources to decarbonize and adapt than in the public sector in some cases. And, and so there were many, many, many sessions talking about how the private sector can play a really positive role. Interestingly, insurers from a bunch of developing countries, particularly in Africa, were describing how agriculture insurance is being used to kind of stabilize production and help keep people out of poverty. And another focus was on closing protection gaps, you know, which is due to lack of available or affordable insurance. Um, Health systems were quite a focus due to the issues of heat stress and how that may affect uh, health insurance and and hospitals and health systems. And finally, you know, following on the theme of prior COPs where the ISSB was prominent, there were a number of sessions on standards related to carbon disclosure and sustainability reporting, uh, which included conversations already underway on the next set of standards, which are like likely to focus on biodiversity and nature. So there, there, yes, Cleese, there was quite a bit of um, activity in the finance sector. Mm, and it's really um, great to see that insurance, insurance and banks are really playing an important role in, in, the, in the transition. Well, and, and, and that's why the International Actuarial Association has tried to achieve NGO status, you know, sent us to COP so that, you know, our profession is also kind of part of that conversation too, because we have quite a bit to add to the discussion. Hmm. What do you see as the big picture challenges that are coming out of COP? Well, if I had to kind of summarize the whole problem down into an answer, short answer to a question, it would be that, you know, we got a huge disconnect between overwhelming scientific evidence of possibly catastrophic warming, continued and growing use of fossil fuels, commitments to fix the problem with unspecified emissions reductions methods, the need for development in many countries, and a complete lack of funding. So so you've got this situation where we know we got a big problem, we know how to fix it, but we can't change our ways and come up with the funding that's needed to implement the changes. <clears throat> and the core of the problem is that while you know decarbonizing has really great long-term benefits, in the short to medium term, it's going to trigger massive economic disruption. You're going to see people, some people lose a lot of wealth, and you're going to see the need for major investments that don't show a benefit for decades, uh, you know, and things like adaptation measures. And it's going to cost a huge amount of money and nobody seems to know where it's going to come from, particularly for developing countries. And, you know, that's why maybe holding COP28 in a fossil fuel producing state was at least instructive as to what the problem is. You know, the UAE has grown wealthy on fossil fuels. Its economy and water supply depend on lots of energy. And finding a way for countries like that to move off fossil fuels and use their wealth to help poorer countries is, in my mind, a key to solving the problem. So, you know, maybe maybe having this conference in UAE, even though it caused um, many people to question why you do that in a fossil fuel state, is, is important. Because without them, there's no solving this problem. But it does sound very difficult. Uh, there's No, there's no doubt it's difficult and it's a long slog. It's going to take decades and decades to address this problem. And it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be cheap. And it, and it does sound like there was a lot of bad news at COP and that meaningful action was proving difficult to achieve. Did you see any reason for hope at COP? Well, it certainly, Calice, was easy to get pessimistic after spending a good bit of time listening to these presentations. But there's a lot of positive 
activity going on. And I'll just cite a few things here. You know, that first, the clarity of the science is obvious. I mean, we've got excellent science, excellent measurement tools. We really understand what's going on. We know what the problem is. We can measure it, and we know what to do about it. And there's also a lot of new technologies available to address many of our issues, like that water recycling project I talked about, and significant advances in battery performance. There's a lot of progress on protecting oceans, tropical rainforests, biodiversity, reducing plastics pollution, etc. There's a growing recognition that the circular economy and recycling are really critical. And private investment is picking up in sustainable activities. So I think overall the financial system is, is, is making a difference and there's a lot of progress being made, particularly being driven by investors, by, um, by, you know, by actions of private companies and their decarbonization plans. And you know, there's a lot of finance available if redirected away from things like fossil fuel subsidies. It was sort of you know, shocking the amount of money that's spent on fossil fuel subsidies or military or many other things. And if even a fraction of that were redirected towards sustainable development, Development, there's a lot we could do. Mm. There are ways forward. Yes, there are, there are ways forward. So it's it's not all negative, uh, but it is daunting, and it's 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 a it can be a bit frustrating and scary when mm. you you just consider the magnitude of the problems. Well, there was a lot of information presented at COP, so thank you, Raid, for summarizing that for us. Um, where could our listeners go to learn more? Well. One thing I did at COP was gathered up a list of key reports, and you know many of them are, you know have executive summaries that are only a few pages, and we're going to publish links to those reports um, along with this podcast, so that interested people would be able to kind of click on uh, the links and see some of the you know excellent reports that were issued at COP. I, I think that it'd be well worth the audience's time to explore some of these reports and you know learn about the things we've been talking about in this podcast in much more depth than we're able to cover here in the few minutes we had. Well, that concludes our discussion for today. If you want more information, feel free to contact our climate team. And thank you for listening.